0: is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode 217,
1: Vintage Aviation Magazine with Mart Klupper, coming up next in this episode of the
2: Stuck Mike Avcast.
0: Now here are your co-hosts, Victoria Neuville, Eric Crump, Larry Overstreet, Russ Rosleski, Tom Frick, Rick Felty, and Carl Valeri.
2: Well, folks, welcome to
1: the podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Today, I have with me a special guest to discuss what many of us love, and that's antique aircraft. But before we begin, a quick word from our sponsor.
0: Do you want to pursue a career in aviation as a pilot, air traffic controller, mechanic, or dispatcher? Or do you just want to earn that commercial or instrument rating, but you need help paying for it? The Aerospace Scholarships Guide at AviationCareersPodcast.com has over $50 million in available scholarships. Many of these go unused because people don't apply for them. For just $10, you'll receive a full year subscription to the guide, which is updated monthly. Every scholarship is personally verified to make sure it's accurate and still available. More information is at AviationCareersPodcast.com. Let's do the pre-flight.
1: And of course, com is our sponsor, and there's uh, something new that we're doing this month uh, and going to keep doing it moving forward. You know, we have a new video and a link on the right side of the website, so go check this out. If for only $10, you can help someone move forward in their career or obtain additional training. And remember there's scholarships for everybody, and that is our pay it forward campaign. Uh you know, even pilots that fly recreationally uh can actually get scholarships. Uh AOPA puts them out there, EAA puts them out there, trying to get both young people involved and also older people involved. People think that the scholarships are only for young folks. It's not true. I mean they have scholarships that are only for people over 50 years old. So go check it out. You can pay it forward and help somebody move forward in their career. StuckMikeAvCast.com slash pay it forward or just click on the video on the right side of the screen. And if you're one of those people that wants to get a scholarship, obviously you can click on that and go check out the scholarships guide and tell everybody that if you're going to actually go there and pay for it, the $10 is one-year access to the scholarships guide, which we update every month, that they put the pay it forward coupon in there because you never know, someone may have paid it forward now entering cruise flight well now on our cruise flight today i have with me a podcaster publisher and lover of all things antique and antique aircraft and that's mark Klupper. hey mark welcome to the podcast man
2: Well, hey, thank you very much. Very happy to be here.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited to have you here because I am a lover of antique aircraft. And uh, I I love, you know, it's funny because I like historic and I also like a lot of the, you know, military aircraft. And uh, I think there's a big crossover between the the two different types of people that are involved in aviation, um, and you obviously are somebody with so much experience and knowledge as far as uh, vintage aircraft is concerned, and you really derived this passion early on in life. So, um, and we're going to talk a little bit about a, a project that you're starting with a vintage aviation magazine. But before we do that, I'd like to know you know a little bit about how people get their passion for aviation. And for what they're doing, so where where did it all start for art?
2: Well, that's a great question, and uh, you know it is interesting because for everybody it is a different path, and uh, for me it was sort of like. Uh I didn't really have a choice in a way, and that's a good thing, because my dad was very much an airplane nut, as he would have called himself. And, uh, so he, um, was an airline pilot. He flew Free United. Um, he started back in 1952. So this is a little bit more of the old school for sure. And, um, it was his love for aviation, which, which was more than just being an airline pilot or even just being a civilian pilot, but he was into sailplanes and skydiving and was interested in all kinds of aviation. And so I was exposed to all that as a kid. And it was real easy then for me to just soak that all up. I guess it was a, a natural connection for me because I was like a big sponge and just soaked it all up. And uh, so it was uh, it, it, one of the things I learned um, as a kid was that. a a lot of the people that we interacted with that were in aviation were a little bit more um, narrow-minded and I don't mean that in a a bad way it's just that their their vision and and interest in aviation followed down a a pretty narrow road and again my dad was interested in everything so for me I was you know getting exposed to and then finding an interest in all kinds of stuff like sailplanes and and skydiving um, which my dad was into both of those and then we were around home-built airplanes and people People who built airplanes and antique airplanes and and uh, and then I had an interest even in corporate aviation. So I was aware of all the different corporate airplanes and, of course, the airliners. And then there's military aviation. That's a whole nother huge universe of knowledge to soak up. So as a kid, I was just sort of uh, exposed to a lot of that and also reading books and magazines that um, were all about that. And, uh, you know, it's really great when you're young to get exposed to stuff like that because you soak it up and it sticks, which is a little harder to do as you get older, which the one thing I wanted to say here is that uh, – as I'm going forward with this uh, magazine project, I'm beginning to realize how little I know about aviation history, <laughs> um, which is not to say that I'm clueless, but it's just there's so much to know. And it's, uh, I'm excited, though, about uh, being able to increase my knowledge and understanding of aviation uh, history.
1: Well one of the things is that you've actually lived a history in your family and that's really exciting and you know one of the, I think something that was interesting what you just said is the part about people being kind of not narrow minded but down this one track and that one track could be uh somebody who's interested in only airline flying you were talking about your father there's a you know I'm an airline pilot and there is definitely those folks that that's that's their one thing is flying the airliners and that's it but what's interesting is you have a whole other group that are actually at the airlines, and I, I love flying with these folks. Either they're written to GA aircraft or restoring aircraft, et cetera. But we we found that in in the airlines, you, you have one or the other. They either just they don't want to see an airplane when they get home, or they're all, like me, all about airplanes. I leave the airport with the airline, and I come back, and I fly small planes. Sure. One thing about the history, though, that is really interesting about your dad, and by the way, that tribute is really cool about your dad. I was reading through that, and we'll, we'll post it as a link at the bottom of the podcast. Um, what he actually was in during this time. Maybe you could speak towards that about the, the history of the airlines, and they actually were able, they were getting hired, and they were putting ads in newspapers, and I'll try to find the ad I have, or they're advertising for pilots if they had their private or instrument that they could actually apply for an airline.
2: Yeah, it was a whole uh, in a way I'll say a whole different time, but that was maybe 10 years ago in our world because the current day right now is we are seeing this real big need for airline pilots, but but of course it was a very different time in that the regulations were much more simplistic and the airplanes were, you know, somewhat more simplistic, but my dad actually he passed away in 2009, but he was born in ni- <clears throat> excuse me, 1929 and um so Uh, The story on him is is kind of interesting, actually, because when he was eight years old, and he was from uh, just a little town in Indiana, and uh, so when he was eight years old, a Ford Trimotor uh, came through, and he was able to get a ride on that, and he knew from that day forward that he wanted to be an airline pilot, and so if you think about that, that's just in the the later 30s. I mean, the airline industry is really just something that's coming to be, and he knew that's what he wanted to be involved in, so um, he was really... fortunate that when he was in high school he was able to learn to fly and soloed when he was 16 years old, and then my grandfather, who was not really so much deeply involved in aviation, but he certainly had an interest and was wanting to nurture his son's uh, you know, growth that way, they, he bought an Aronka Defender, which I wish I knew how much he paid for that, um, because, you know, of course, in our dollars, it wouldn't have been much, but my grandfather was a farmer and, and a laborer, basically, so it was kind of a big deal that he wound up being able to uh, buy that little Aronka Defender, but anyway. Anyway, so my dad um, got some time built up in that, and uh, but he graduated high school in 1947. So he missed all of World War II. And um, so when he went into the Air Force then right after high school, he had hoped he would be able to become a pilot. And uh, But because they had so many pilots left over from the war and such, uh, and the recruiter had told him, oh, yeah, yeah, you'll be a pilot. But that didn't didn't pan out. So And it wasn't that he didn't have the skills. They just didn't have the need. So – he wound up uh, doing uh, maintenance work on a B-17, became a crew chief on a rescue B- B-17 down in Panama, which was kind of interesting. They'd taken all the guns out of it, and it was used over the jungle and the ocean and such uh, just to serve as a rescue operation. They even had a large boat that they could mount on the bottom of the B-17, and it had parachutes on it. So if they found a stranded ship out there uh, you know, in the waters, they could actually drop that boat down. And uh, so anyway, he had some interesting experiences. Uh, And in fact, I remember him telling me stories of occasionally being able to sit in the pilot seat in that B-17. You know, uh, the, the pilots had let him fly some. And that just made it even worse in a way because he knew that's what he wanted to do. So when his two years were up, he got out of the military. And he uh, got into Purdue University and was working his way towards uh, becoming an airline pilot. And, in fact, this is interesting because you mentioned an article, a newspaper article. Well, my granddad sent my dad a little newspaper clipping that said United Airlines was hiring. And as I remember the story, my dad was even like – uh, let's see, United Airlines, he wasn't exactly sure even who they were in detail. And if you think about it, he'd been out of the country, you know, in the Air Force and such, too. So, um, but here, here's a clipping saying United's looking for pilots. And he was only a year and a half in, into his college um, experience when he got hired by United Airlines. And as I remember, he did not have, uh, I don't think he had a multi-engine rating. He may have gotten that at Purdue. I'm not sure. But he had very limited, you know, uh, certificates. <clears throat> but the airlines were willing to train and looking for the right people. And uh, he just happened to be in the right place at the right time. So uh, he started out as a co-pilot on DC-3s in 1952. And uh, so his his experience was really um, – it's kind of a golden age in a way because to go from dc threes and then all through the larger propeller driven aircraft into the earlier days of the jets and then ultimately he spent the last sixteen years of his career flying the seven forty seven which in those days was the earlier seven forty sevens they weren't the dash 400s. so but still that's quite a experience range uh... to go from a dc three to seven forty seven and quite a few things in between so
1: that's a fascinating story, and you're right. It is a big leap. It, it was a big leap, too, to go right from, like, Purdue, like you said, to the airlines. And um, one of the things that's interesting, and I tell you what, we're going to work on this, because that article, I remember my first boss in aviation showing me that article. And I'm going to reach out to the family and say, hey, I would love to get a copy of that. And if any of our listeners have a copy, we would love to see it. Because that, that was something that, when I tell people that story about that those advertisements and saying hey listen there's jobs at the airlines it's like no that can't be true but, you know, it, it was, and we're seeing that again. We're seeing advertisements for pilots, but there's a whole other segment of aviation that, you know, I don't, don't want to fly uh, for a living, but love it as a hobby. And that's kind of the path that you went down, Mart, instead of the airlines. And I'm, kinda, I'm sure we're going to get this question, you know, really, why, why didn't you go that route since it was uh, so, so much of a part of your family?
2: Yeah, that's a good question, and you know, I guess looking back, um, I probably should have because it's a it's a pretty decent career, and especially back in the you know um, the older days, it was a pretty decent career for sure, and uh, and it still is, you know, it, it has its ups and downs for sure, obviously. But anyway, I uh, I, I just I guess sort of selfishly, I because uh, I have sort of a unique love relationship with aviation. I mean, it is. Part of me, it goes all the way to my core. But I also I I like a passionate aviation experience, and I guess by contrast, sitting in the front of an aluminum tube um, for hours on end, you know, talking to the other guy because the airplane's doing you know essentially the work it needs that needs to be done isn't necessarily a passionate flying experience for me. Now, for some people it is, and just that opportunity to be able to, if you think about it, you're sitting at 40,000 feet looking over the world and getting paid to do it. I mean, that is pretty darn awesome. You, You can't argue with that. But for whatever reason, it just uh, it wasn't something that clicked with me as, a, as something I wanted to do for a career. Plus, there were other challenges. And I remember this being very much an issue um, was my parents got divorced when I was four. And I know the divorce rate amongst airline pilots, uh, especially back in the day. I have no idea what it's like today. But back in the day, it was really high. Um, the, the being away from family, um, like uh, you are as an airline pilot, is a challenge. And so that was one thing that sort of factored into my thinking as well, is that um, I didn't want to wind up maybe, you know, in that kind of a situation. So there's a lot of reasons why, but I guess it kind of boils down to this, is that I'm very and admittedly sort of selfish about the things that I love about aviation, and I want to embrace those to the maximum that I can. And those things are typically older airplanes or unusual airplanes, home-built airplanes. I, I'm not really good about ordinary and I'm not putting ordinary down because ordinary is the meat and potatoes of aviation I mean there's more ordinary than anything else and there's a reason for that because it's popular and it's affordable its reasonable so at no point am I putting down ordinary but I'm not ordinary I like the things that are much more over to the edges and outside the box and uh, so again um the the reason why I didn't wind up an airline pilot i guess was i just didn't have any desire to do that and um again looking back though if i had i'd probably have some airplanes, some really cool airplanes right now sitting in a hangar had i uh, been <laughs> been flying for the airlines for a long time so those yeah. those definitely the advantage of uh, some good income there
1: but. yeah the income is one thing but you know the, the it's interesting what you said we're not a career show but there, that's the biggest thing I hear is from people saying, "Hey, listen, I don't want to be away from my family all the time." And that's uh, that's the major reason I hear from most people is that is that alone. If they could be home every night, no, well, heck, yeah, I'd do that. That's cool. And uh, and the other part too, like you said, it's like you're sitting there and uh, for hours on end. Then it's punctuated by a landing and a takeoff, but uh, you don't get to do that too often. You're not going around in a super cub around the pattern twelve times, and uh, you get to do that when you're in a your smaller aircraft. Speaking of the Super Cub, though, you actually – it's cool that you kind of went this route because you have developed such an incredible – A passion for aviation and and you have decided to you've moved in a lot of directions here we can talk a little bit if you like about air pigs and that that uh you know you had a blog and then a podcast and then you've moved towards the vintage aviation side of things so so what happened there you you got into the aviation you did started doing some restoration. so take us from there to where you actually started doing air pigs
2: Okay, well, let me back up a little bit and say that I was really fortunate in that my dad bought a brand new Cetabria, a 7 C A B, So that's the 150 horse, had the inverted fuel and oil system in it, so that it could do some basic aerobatics, and um, and uh, that was 1973, I think. So I was 12 years old when he bought that brand new. We actually flew United up to uh, Minnesota, took a cab over to uh, I believe it was Osceola, Wisconsin, where Belanca was building Cetabrias at that time. And uh, we picked it up right there at the factory and flew it back home. So that was a pretty cool experience, uh, right there. And then, um, then the next year, when I was 13, my dad taught me how to fly in that. Now he wasn't an instructor, and of course, at 13, you can't, fl- you know, you can't solo anyway. But it was just an incredibly valuable experience to learn to fly in a tail dragger that actually is. I mean, you can say sometimes a low powered tail dragger is a little easier to learn in, or maybe a higher powered one. There's, there's, there's different. Reasons why either having lesser power or more power can make learning in a tail drag or a challenge, but I always thought one hundred and fifty horsepower is is a fair amount of horsepower to be starting out with you know right from the get go and I learned on a really narrow runway that predominantly had crosswinds, so it was just amazing what that did for me because it it uh, burned as I say it it burned the grooves of understanding into my brain really deep at that young age and so flying tail draggers to me is something that just seems extremely natural and um, it's uh, again it's something I'm passionate about because if there's a tail dragger sitting on the ramp and there's a trike sitting on the ramp well the one that ignites passion in me is clearly the tail dragger and I actually can't graph that out I can't tell you why i just know that it does so but anyway so i had this great opportunity to learn to fly when i was really young and then my dad was into sailplanes and we had a, an airport uh we were living in Illinois then at the time and, uh, cause I'm actually originally from California, but, uh, anyway, by the age of 10, I was in uh, Illinois and my dad was flying out of Chicago and at that time had just gotten onto the 747. So anyway, we were flying out of Hinkley, Illinois, which was a grass runway that had skydiving and sailplanes. So two things that my dad was, had been into for years. So that was a great place. We spent so much time hanging out there. And, um, so the, uh, sailplane exposure for me was just something very natural and my birthday is in February so there's obviously no soaring in uh, in Illinois in February so we went down to Florida and on my 14th birthday then I soloed in a Schweitzer 233 Uh, you can call a sailplane it's more like a glider they're not a very good sailplane but um, so anyway uh, again I have to thank my dad for that because Um, Had it been up to me at at that age to be driven like many people are when they're 14 to 16 years old and, you know, they're the kid at the fence and looking over the the airplanes and then they're like, I've got to do that. And they find a way. They push themselves forward. For me, it was, um, you know, a bit of a. I don't know if you call it an unfair advantage or what it was, but it was just there for me. So all I had to do was reach out and grab it, and uh, and I did. So uh, so I had uh, some um, exposure for sure to the gliders, which is kind of interesting, too. I can just go on and on about the crazy um, opportunities I had. But my dad then bought, while I was still 14, he bought a Schweitzer 135 sailplane. Which was an all-metal because all the Schweitzer airplanes were all-metal, but it looked like a European competition airplane. Had a T-tail, retractable landing gear, the long skinny wing, and in a very laid-back um, seating position with a you know beautiful long plexiglass canopy. And so anyway, he he bought that brand new. And, uh, again, these are some of the perks that come with being an airline pilot, uh, being able to buy new airplanes in the 70s. So, um, but he let me uh, fly that Schweitzer 135 even when I was 14 years old, which is pretty crazy because it was a high-performance sailplane with a retractable landing gear. And uh, so, again, I just had these great opportunities that, uh, sometimes looking back is just hard to believe, but, and also hard to believe that he even let me like, I mean, who's going to stick their 14 year old kid in this, you know, relatively expensive and somewhat exotic, uh, sailplane, but my dad did. So anyway, um, now th- this segues then right into the next, uh, to answer your question then, because, um, I had been raised around Oshkosh, too, um, f- I mean, the event, and so, in fact, I was at the last Rockford in 1969, and then because my dad was all about this world, you know, so we were always going, and uh, so I was at the first Oshkosh in 1970, and so here we are in 2019, and, and I'm, I'm frustrated because I have missed some Oshkoshes, but I've only missed about eight in my entire life. So I have this huge history of experience of being at Oshkosh and it is just it's deep in my heart. Oshkosh is the greatest place in the world as far as I'm concerned. So I was um exposed to the whole home built world from uh you know, age nine on. So here I am in high school, I've soloed in a sailplane, and I have this interest in building a home built airplane. So I bought the plans for an airplane called the Pober Pixie. It was something that the EAA had uh uh, designed and was uh, selling the plans for, and so I set out uh, while in high school as a junior to build from scratch, just using the plans, this simple little single engine uh, open cockpit tail dragger, and uh, I got I got really far along. By the time I graduated high school, I had the uh, the fuselage was all built, the wings were built. The uh, fuselage may have been. Covered uh, that may have been shortly after, but and and it's an interesting story um, because I I sort of lost uh, my my wind on the project and I wound up selling that airplane at about eighty percent complete and I really wish I hadn't. Looking back, I should have found the uh, the strength to push through because it really would have changed my whole mindset uh, about myself having completed that project and uh, so. But that's pretty ambitious, for sure, as a high school kid to, uh, you know, get in there and, and start building an airplane. It, but it seemed kind of natural to me, because, again, I was raised around everything that was going on at Oshkosh, and uh, that's kind of just what people did, you know. So, so the idea of building airplanes and using my hands was something that I'd been interested in, and it's somewhat in contrast to my dad, because um, he wasn't so much into that. Now, in that tribute that I did to him, there is a Schweitzer 126 that he... Uh, built in the late uh, 50s, but that airplane actually was a, a highly fabricated kit, uh, even more so than the kit airplanes that we see out uh, in, in the world today, and so there, it was more like an assembly process, just assemble the big pieces and put some fabric on it, and, and off you went. Now, here's another interesting thing that really shows the uniqueness of my dad. So this was, uh, he was in California uh, when he built that. That was in the late 50s. And flying for United, he builds the sailplane while there was soaring across the bay over at Fremont, California, right up against the hills. And with the wind coming in from the west all the time, they could ridge soar in that rising air that's going right up over the hills. And they could do that for long periods of time, as long as the wind was blowing. So on the very first test flight of that little Schweitzer 126, he flew it for seven hours and ten minutes. Wow. So... That's, I mean, you can't even imagine any airplane making a test flight that would last 7 hours and 10 minutes because usually they can't carry enough fuel on board to do such a thing. And here's an airplane with no engine on its very first flight and seven hours and ten minutes. And he said, I remember him always saying that, uh, and the only reason he quit was because it was getting dark, and he had to come back. <laughs> so I just, I always, uh, you know, my dad was just kind of unique, maybe a little bit weird. And I guess maybe some of that rubbed off, because I'm definitely unique and a little bit weird. But anyway, so.
1: But then you got into doing some type of restorations, too. I mean, you really are very talented there. Uh, and, and we're going to talk a little bit about pigs and then the, the magazine. But how did you make that leap?
2: Well, um, you know, it's kind of interesting. We moved to Indiana. And my dad bought a little airport a little, with a little paved runway on it. But it was just a little country airport with not much activity. And uh, I did a little bit of uh, fabric work uh, back in the 80s there and then in the 90s um, I had the opportunity to acquire a Satabria that needed recovered and I did recover the airplane but it wasn't really what I'd call a restoration it was mostly just a um, you know refurbishment and and new fabric and then I had a long hiatus I actually had a, an 18year period where even though I was um, very interested in aviation in fact that's where air pigs fits in uh, as a small part of that 18 years and um, as my way to stay connected to aviation i started the blog air pigs uh in 2000 let's see when when was that it's 2008 and um and it was a way for me to still feel really connected to aviation even though i did not have the financial means to be actively flying and such um but uh, so i uh i had this big gap um that that I didn't have any opportunity to work on airplanes and and was not flying and such. But in 2014, I got current again in a uh, J3 Cub. And then not too long after that, I was talking to a half-brother I have out in California. And he's a successful businessman and and getting a little closer to retirement. He's a couple years older than me. I'm 58 now. So um, anyway, he um, has always had an interest in the Super Cub. And uh, now he had the the means to to have one, and we got to talking, and so from all that we found one for sale um, in uh, uh, down close to uh, Mexico, almost actually in uh, southern uh, Arizona, and it was kind of interesting because he was born, uh, my brother was born in '59, and the airplane was a '59, so he connected to that one, you know, bonded with it really well, and uh, we had a little bit of a challenge working out the the deal of purchase but we finally got that squared away and the plan then was for me to uh, to do a full restoration of the airplane and it wasn't damaged it was uh, it was in all intact but it just uh, it it actually still had the original cotton fabric on it from the factory, which is almost unheard of. Uh, However, there was a tripacer up at Oshkosh a couple years ago that had uh, the original fabric, and that airplane is 100% still airworthy because it's been in a uh, very controlled environment. And uh, so the cotton can hold up, but usually, you know, when the airplane sits outside and such, the cotton will definitely deteriorate. But so anyway, the airplane... um, only had 2,000 hours total time on it, but it needed a lot of love, and uh, this was really an interesting experience for me because again, I I don't really have a huge backlog of experience using my hands to work on airplanes. Now I do have some experience, but um, in this uh, more recent time, the last 20-25 years, I've been doing uh, ceramic tile work and made, I've done a lot of custom showers, and that's tedious, detailed work where attention to detail is really important. And it's interesting that that has molded me using the the knowledge that I have of vintage aircraft. And now I have the skills with my hands, and I'm able to do a pretty darn good job. And that Super Cub, I had 13 months of full-time work. So he paid me to work on it. And um, so I had 13 months in it and uh, uh, got the entire thing uh, completed which was kind of cool too cuz I got to do the test flight on it um, cuz I did it all here in Indiana he's out in California he didn't even see the airplane at any time during the process but so I actually got to be the test pilot of course for it as well because to me I'm just so interested in both of those avenues uh, construction and you know and maintenance and restoration and then also being the pilot and uh, So I uh, flew the airplane up to Oshkosh last year and was really fortunate that it won a a bronze Lindy award, so it was uh, really very nicely recognized for the the work on it, and I tried to give it a very vintage vibe, Um, and this is kind of where it sort of segues a little bit into the magazine, because I'm passionate about the details and, um, and the look and the feel and the response that the other individual has to what you've done. So whether it's a magazine that you're trying to produce... Or whether it's an airplane you restored, I like to find a way to make people go, wow, you know, that's because that's just great. That's good for them and it's good for the person who did the creating them because you get to see, you know, a very visible response to your work from others and so those are the kinds of things that that drive me especially um, at this point in time in my life and uh, so the Super Cub was a really good representation of that I think. Um, One of the things I think that's really interesting is that I used I use the Stuart system, uh, which is the the paint coatings and paint process that goes onto the fabric. And they have a flattener that you can put in the paint because the polyurethane paints used today typically are very wet look, uh, very shiny, and they look like they're wet. And a lot of people love that. But, of course, me being a little bit of a weirdo, I'm not as much into that. I like more of a satiny you know, matte, cool kind of look, not a flat military look. I mean, that's cool, too, in the military situation. But on the Super Cub, you wouldn't want flat paint. But so with the flattener in there, the airplane just has this – it almost looks like a painting instead of the real thing. And in my world, sometimes the painting is even more beautiful than the real thing, if that makes sense. And uh, so the – Those kinds of details uh, just drive me uh, wild in a good way, and and they they drive me forward. And uh, so I love to pursue uh, that kind of uh, understanding and then try to put things into practice. And I'm no magician, for sure, when it comes to being able to do things. But I like to learn, and I like to try, and um, the things that I did on that Super Cub that um, were a little different, all seem to pan out to be actually successful ideas. And so I'm hoping to apply that to um, this uh, this magazine project, which to back up the magazine – I'm sorry, I'm talking a lot here, but – No, I'm um, not. <laughs> to, to back up the magazine project, I did do this Airpig's blog, which um, was really um, my response to uh, – um, the financial crisis that that I and millions of others had in 2008 and I was trying to find a, a new way to uh, survive and so you know blogs were kind of like the hot thing and we thought maybe that was going to be uh, a path to uh, financial success and it is for some but the reality is that that very few are really successful and most are just they eat up your time and uh, so I started air pigs and uh, and again a, a shooting at this wide uh, path of aviation so a lot of things of unique interest that I posted there uh, you know summer stories and a lot of videos that I'd find on YouTube that were just you know fascinating or fun and such so i in six years I had 1300 posts and uh, and I consider it to be a success but it never really generated any uh, income uh, to speak of and so at some point there i I sort of let it Um, it's been stagnant, uh, just hibernating is uh, what I say for years now. And in fact, the last page or so of posts are just more random. You have to go back a little bit. But it's actually, if a a guy can't sleep at night, or a gal, if anybody can't sleep at night you need something to do, Airpigs is still a really good place to just go spend two or three hours scrolling through and seeing cool pictures or watching cool videos, whatever. But but that experience um, of being kind of, quote-unquote, journalistic, um you know, putting together stories and and uh, and then trying to find the angle for a story. I, I actually am. Really fascinated by that process because you could take a story and you could have ten people do a, uh, a story on an event or a, a particular thing, and you're going to get a very different story from each one of them. And it all depends on you know, well, what perspective are you using, and maybe how deep are you uh, going. And I just love that process, so I think that potentially makes me good as a you know an editor or a publisher of a, a magazine. Um, we'll see if that. Pans out, but well, one uh, so that, that go ahead. I'm I so was starting. gonna say,
1: one of the things that I'm excited about is, is you're bringing this air pigs to the magazine format because you know, I'm one of those people that love the blog, and uh, and honestly, if you don't read it, you can actually sit and look at it, and it's very appealing. I love the, the logo and I like the pictures. As a matter of fact, I think the last blog post you did was uh, the, the restoration. Of that Super Cub, and and there's some really cool yeah. pictures of that, and and one of it's it's amazing that you've gotten so much into vintage aircraft, and uh, which this actually spurred that whole you know thought of doing the vintage aircraft uh, aviation magazine, uh, but and we'll get a little bit into what vintage is, but but again now now you're at that point, so in your mind you know what is this going to become and uh, this vintage aviation magazine.
2: Yep. well, and let me. This would be a good time to say that I actually just recently launched a Kickstarter.com campaign, so a crowdfunding campaign to support my effort to attempt the magazine. So uh, if you go to Kickstarter and you can just search uh, in the search box "vintage aviation" and it'll pop right up. And, uh, and we'll so put a link the, to, the,
1: to that in the podcast, by the way. So if you need to find it, just go to stuck my Gavcast and click at the bottom. We have the Kickstarter there.
2: Very good. Yeah. And uh, so the um, the idea there is that um, I, I came up with the idea of t- trying to do something unique, of course, because that's kind of the way I think. And uh, so and I'm passionate about the past. So, um, and the term vintage aviation, I was kind of surprised is, has not been used to my, you know, at least from a publication standpoint, as far as I've been able to tell. Um, so, um, and of course the EAA has sport aviation, which has been around for, since the fifties. And I was raised on that magazine as well as a kid looking through, and that's where I learned a lot about, you know, how to build airplanes is just from looking at that, but so the term, I thought, that's a really great term because it's a, it's a thing, vintage aviation. It's an entire universe, but it's also going to be this particular magazine. And uh, so I think that all seems to, to work out pretty well. And um, I, I thought maybe... Because my research on print, uh, the, you know, the predominant thinking is, uh, the, sh- the, uh, the surface thinking is that print is dead in this modern world. And um, there's no doubt print has been, you know, beaten up significantly by um, electronic uh, communication. But the reality is, is print isn't dead. In fact, it'll never be dead because it is such an entirely different experience. A- and there's always going to be a market and a need for that experience, but it's not it's not the same as it was 20 years ago. There's no doubt about that. But in my research, I found that niche magazines are um, are pretty pretty popular. They're doing really well. So you find a niche and you serve it well, and you don't have nearly the size of an audience that a legacy type magazine, even a legacy aviation magazine, which of course the aviation market is relatively small to begin with. But we do have major players in in there that are um, you know have large. Uh, readerships, but that's not what I'm targeting for at all. I'm, you know, hoping in the long run, I would love it if I could have an audience of 10 to 20,000 people. So maybe 20,000 subscribers for this magazine at some point in time in the future, you know, when I've really proven that uh, that it's viable. Um, and um, I- I like you know a smaller audience like that, and I think that if you run lean as an operation, you can be profitable and, and provide a really really great product. So, um, but the niche is that. All of the uh, images in this publication are, um, the term I use is historical. They're basically old images. They're not, they're not modern images of old airplanes. They're old images of old airplanes. And uh, the key there, though, is you've got to find great images. So you got to go back to being uh, you know passionate and trying to feed the artistic side and make sure that the images that you find are of the quality, uh, in both resolution and, uh, and the way that they're uh, formatted, uh in a way the 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 picture was taken and uh and there's a lot of that out there is what I've found. and that's it is still one of the major things that I have to do though is uh, I've got some sources right now for for excellent images that um, will certainly get me through this initial uh, project because the Kickstarter is just for one issue, the premier issue. So I can find out if there if there's a response you know are there people interested in this concept and and then can I provide a quality experience and hopefully I'll prove that. In this whole process, um, I will say that the Kickstarter's only been up for a very short period of time, and it's uh, almost four percent funded already. So I'm really encouraged that it does look like I'm I'm reaching some people right away here, and uh, it's going to run the whole month of July. It actually goes till August third, and I'm going to have a booth up at Oshkosh in the Fly Market um, that'll have uh, the plan is I'm going to have two really large mock covers, um, like billboard graphics that are uh, large uh, and will stand out. So I think people will be able to find it, and uh, I'm hoping to be able to connect with a lot of people up there that uh, that are interested in it. But one of the other things that I'm trying to do is make it a an aviation historical archive, because um, I'm really passionate about um, truth and accuracy, and um, so that's and that's not incredibly unusual. I'm trying to say in in the publishing world, but I don't know. Maybe I guess when you look at modern uh, uh, mainstream culture, it, it maybe uh, accuracy is hard to find because it's more about just you know sensationalism and such. But obviously, when you're talking historical aviation, it it should be a real goal to be as accurate as possible. If you don't know, then don't say you know about certain things. And uh, so this requires a lot of research, and and of course I'm going to have to have other writers involved. Um, and I have some lined up, um, again, where I'm just doing this one issue here initially, which the goal then would be next year I would like to be able to do four issues. So if this Kickstarter campaign succeeds, then I hope to come back uh, just right at the first of the year, really, and present a subscription to four uh, issues for uh, 2020. And uh, th- if that happens to get the opportunity, then I think then there is where we'll really be able to see the thing, uh, put down roots. And uh, But I do see it as something that could be a uh, historical archive of sorts um, in a entertaining um, magazine format. So right. anyway, again, I'm... T- talking a lot here so
1: (laughs) well in my opinion I I think it's a it's a great idea I love those like you said those niche markets I mean we go after those with some of our aviation websites and uh, you know look at us with aviation careers podcast how that's grown just out of a a small niche market but one of the things that I I really like about this because I know this question comes up as far as vintage aircraft association and the EAA Association and, and that is one of the organizations that you support, but this is, this is more, it, it, that seems to be more the person who's involved in the restoration, owning and flying, uh, where I feel yours actually, it's a niche, but it's also a larger audience in that, because there's a lot of people that are into vintage aircraft that you know really don't have an interest in in flying restoring etc but they love the the incredible pictures i know i'm one of those people that subscribes to many of those type of magazines where i get the beautiful shots i get the historic shots but i also get some information i want to learn and i also want to be entertained and this magazine, I feel, is going to help me learn about my history, but also it's going to entertain me, which is really important. That's why, of course, I'm I'm also, you know, full disclosure, and all, a supporter of the Kickstarter too, and and very excited about this project. I can't wait to see my magazine.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, thank you very much. I appreciate uh, your. Uh, your show of support there and your enthusiasm for it. And, you know, I think it really is a great idea. And I just hope that I can connect with enough people to, you know, uh, get me over the hump and get this thing rolling. Because um, one of the things that, that I noticed, and I even mentioned in the writing on the Kickstarter page is that um, there's a huge number of people that are interested in aviation. And then there's just a small number of people that are actually active in aviation. So that's a really interesting dynamic Mm -hmm. that, that honestly, there are there are hundreds of thousands, if not maybe even millions, of people in the United States who would have an interest in picking up in a magazine that has really cool, informative articles on the history of aviation. Um, but they don't fly. They don't. They don't even go to the airport necessarily on a regular basis. Now, some of those people may go to air shows. They may go to Oshkosh because, again. If you look at the type of people that are Oshkosh, or at Oshkosh, there obviously are a lot of pilots, but there are a lot of people who never clicked with uh, maybe the financial resources to learn to fly, or honestly, I've run into an awful lot of them, they have no interest in actually being a pilot. Some of them don't even have interest in getting off the ground in an airplane, just riding, but they still have this unique interest and, and passion for what, aviation represents. And I think that's a really, that's just a fascinating thing. It it should tell us how special aviation is, that there's a a large number of people People that are interested in it, even though they aren't necessarily specifically interested in participating in it. So, again, I think I can reach that um, market with, with something that has a little bit of a, an old school Life magazine feel to it. I'm not, it's not going to look like Life magazine, but you might feel elements of that when, you, when you're looking at it and um and the photography was of course a big issue in in uh, i mean a big selling point to to life magazine back in the way back in the day and if i do good research and find great resources for images then i can find these compelling images and mix them with compelling stories and then I like to go that extra mile to not just be superficial about a story, but when it's appropriate, when it seems to make sense, go deeper into the history, uh, the details, or even things like uh, understanding um, the, the shift let's say, away from wood structures because, uh, you know, the early airliners had a a lot of wood in them. And then we had, uh, there was a big accident with the Fokker trimotor and uh, and they attributed that to being a a wooden spar in the wing. And while wood is not a bad material in any way, shape, or form for aircraft use, the thing is, it is much more dependent upon good care, long-term care. And so... If you're looking for an airframe that can just uh, endure, then metal is a better way to go. But there's nothing wrong with wood. But there was this big shift away from wood and into um, aluminum for airliners. And so there's a... a huge amount of story that could be told in multiple articles that look at aspects of that shift in both the material and the engineering required then to use aluminum, uh, and especially in a time when airplanes kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So the challenges from an engineering standpoint were increasing. And so I find that stuff interesting. Now, not to the point that we're, you know, uh, crunching numbers and, and, you know, sharing mathematic formulas because that's boring ultimately unless this is something you know you're wildly into but if an article is able to point out you know why a design style was used or what this engineering tactic was and how it worked I think people would find that interesting and and useful Um, so that's my thought anyway Um, it's a delicate balance trying to find a way to communicate a lot of information and making sure though that it's still Absorbable, uh, and I think the fact that at least I'm aware of that gives me a chance of figuring out how to make sure that the information is in, in absorbable and not you know so thick that people can't. Uh, can't hang on to it so
1: so we're actually really excited about that and uh as far as the magazine and and being able to read those articles but remind us again like when you you talk vintage i I know the eaa has their uh when they discuss vintage amazingly enough it goes all the way there's different categories it goes all the way up to 1970 uh the end of 1970 but uh in your magazine again what what time range are we looking at
2: Well, I basically just sort of arbitrarily picked um, from 1900, because obviously if the Wright brothers flew in 1903, there's... There is photographic record of things that were going on right at 1900 in, in developing um, a flying machine, and then all the way up to about 1960, and that was just kind of an arbitrary number. It's kind of interesting. I was born in 1961, so it's kind of like I guess I'm interested in, in presenting the world of aviation before I was on the planet, So, which that's not – that's just the way it works out that wasn't really my uh, goal but I've, at some point you you have to draw a line at least because uh it, it, things changed and you don't you don't feel that vintage vibe and i and i know that you can have a uh, for example, let's say a in early 1960s Cherokee, and uh, and it's considered a vintage airplane. But in in my world, in certain respects, it doesn't match the vibe of what vintage is. In other respects, it does, though. I mean, I'm not and doesn't isn't I'm not ever about putting things down. But the focus is going to be more on, um, you know, more on the airplanes that that really range from uh, from the wright brothers era on through the forties and world war ii and then some of the things that happened afterwards and and clearly i'm going to tap into and this will be one of the interesting challenges is how do i tap into the jet age because in the forties and fifties well we really did get into the jet age and and things changed dramatically um and visually and uh so uh, the challenge there will be in, in picking the right kinds of stories that, that still um, match this mythical thing that I call vintage. Uh, I think in everybody's head that's, that means something a little bit different as to what vintage is. But when I think of vintage things, I, I want them to be the kind of things that um, uh, bring out an emotional response. Um, you know that make you go wow, or that draw you in deeper, or that are just so beautifully designed that you're mesmerized by the item. And and I feel like that through the '60s and '70s and all the way till now, that 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 aspect of design has given has been given a backseat, and economics and profitability and other factors have been moved further forward. and And I understand why that is to some extent, except that. I I think that you should still keep uh the passionate side of it in the front seat while you do the other things in the front seat too. So just make sure that things have, you know, a a uh, an emotional stirring um ability. Uh so anyway, that's
1: uh that's, that's cool. kind
2: of where I'm thinking is uh
1: and I, I think everybody has some will have some kind of connection to that and uh, to that that thought of vintage etc and and I think we all can uh, enjoy this type of magazine and wh- I'm I can't wait I can't wait to see it come out and like I said that's one of the reasons I'm a, a big supporter and I think other people should too so if somebody wants to, s- to learn a little bit more about your magazine that you're coming out with also uh, and maybe they want to help support how can they do that
2: Yeah. Well, what I did was, uh, for Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, I got vintage av mag. So, um, it's, uh, the same name is used on all those platforms. And I also have vintageavmag.com, but there's no actual website there just yet. There will be at some point in time, but the the Facebook page really is probably the, the best place to be, um, you know, connected and, and get an overview. Um, but right now, actually the Kickstarter, uh, Campaign is is really the best way to rapidly rapidly absorb what the magazine is, is all about, and uh, and then of course if you are interested in it, and a person wants to you know um, be able to get the magazine, or as all Kickstarter campaigns are, there are various. Levels that you can get in on and get some other things. I've got uh, you know T-shirts and a hat and uh, this, this idea that I, I'm excited about is uh, I've also got a mechanic shirt and it'll have the logo uh, above one pocket. But I'll actually even embroider any name that you want on that shirt. Um, so you can have this mechanic shirt that's vintage aviation uh, logo branded as well. And uh, so anyway, there's various different levels. But if you watch the video and read the the overview, um, that's a really good way to just kind of get an idea of what this project is about. And, and of course, I do hope that – I hope people – if you are, you know – interested, if you're inspired by this at all, I do hope that you get in at some level in supporting, because it's going to take, um, I mean, it's like everything, you've got to have money to make things happen, and uh, I'm only shooting for $25,000 for this campaign, so it's not an astronomical goal, um, but uh, it's going to take some money, and it's going to take some people who understand uh, the value of this, both as entertainment um, and as an educational tool. Um, it, it was one thing I'd like to say real quick is that we are so far down range now from those early formative years, uh, formative years of aviation, that um, we've got you know multiple generations now that aren't exposed to that. And I think there's an awful lot to be learned there. I think that our future in aviation is best shaped by us understanding as much about the past as possible, and um, I think there's a little bit of a gap there. So I think something like this that's very accessible to the popular culture, this magazine format that hopefully will look beautiful and work beautiful, um, can be very effective in getting aviation history into their mind and maybe even better into their heart.
1: Well, Mark Klupper from uh, Vintage Aviation Magazine, thanks so much for joining us here. And I do agree with uh, this project. I think it's a great passion of yours. And I think it's going to become a passion of ours as a reader. And I can't wait to see it out there in print. And I, I suggest everybody who's listening to go out there and check it out on the Facebook page, Vintage Av Magazine. It's Vintage Av Mag. and uh, And also, obviously, we'll have links to the Kickstarter. And if nothing else, watch that video. Awesome video that about the vintage av magazine, vintage aviation magazine. I think it's going to be a terrific uh, addition to the world of aviation publications, and I can't wait to see it. Mart, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Well, thank you. Thanks for letting me talk so much. Uh, may- maybe sometime if we get a chance, we can talk a lot more about airplanes in general, too. So yes. if there's ever a chance to come back, I would love it.
1: We would love to have you back on, and, and uh, especially talking about vintage aircraft and, and any other projects you have. So, so hopefully you'll join us again.
2: Sounds great. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, folks, uh, if you like the podcast, make sure you go check us out on iTunes. And also don't forget to check out the links at the bottom of the podcast here. And you can go and check out that video. Really neat video, of nothing else. Look at that. Look at the pictures that are on the Facebook page there. And we've really enjoyed uh, talking to Mark Klupper from Vintage Aviation Magazine. Can't wait to see it out there and in print. We're big supporters here. and uh, And don't forget, you know, get out there and do something today that really you love to do in aviation. Maybe it's not flying. Maybe it's something like this where you can get involved and actually just spur your enjoyment of aviation, even if it's not from a flying standpoint. Maybe it's from a historic standpoint. Maybe you'll connect, but I really encourage you to do that. Well, folks, we'll talk to you next episode. Stay flying.
0: You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast.